Welcome to What Happened Next, a podcast about newish books. My name is Nathan Whitlock, and I'm a writer. On this podcast, I speak to other writers about what happens when their new book is no longer new, and it's time to write another one. This is the first new episode of 2024. As always, I hope that after listening to this one, you'll go back through the conversations I had in 2023 and find some you like. I had great conversations about the weirdness and pleasure of being a writer with Alicia Elliott, Andrew Piper, Lynn Cody, Susan Musgrave, Ron Sexsmith, Dimitri Nasrallah, Julius Lalonde, Randy Boyagoda, Carrie Fagan, Ann Douglas, Jill Adamson, Stuart Ross, Elizabeth Damariafi, Elise Friedman, and look, so many more. If you want to send me a suggestion for a future guest, or make a comment on a particular episode, or just find out more about what I'm doing, I have books of my own, hint, hint. You can also find out about the live karaoke band I'm in. That's a real thing, and it's great. For all of that, please go to nathanwhitlock.ca. My guest on this episode is Wayne Johnston. Wayne is the author of nearly a dozen celebrated novels, including The Colony of Unrequited Dreams and The Mystery of Right and Wrong. He has also published a pair of memoirs, including his most recent book, Jenny's Boy, A Newfoundland Childhood, about his own childhood in the 1960s. It was published in 2022 in Canada by Knopf Canada and won the Stephen Leacock Memorial Award for Humour. The Toronto Star, in its review of the book, said... Never overblown or sentimental, Jenny's boy is as vivid as one's own memories, a glimpse into a past of pain and wonder, of loss and joy. Wayne and I talk about his nocturnal writing and living habits, and how he is slowly shifting his schedule to become more of a day person, why he has never suffered from writer's block, and how, as someone who has been nominated for many, many writing prizes, as well as winning a few, he deals with the happiness and agony of waiting to hear them call the name of the winner. You are somewhat famously nocturnal. You've written, you wrote about that in Jenny's Boy in the afterward, um, about your, your routine and your sort of nighttime routine and your, your lifelong insomnia. Um, but you actually did mention you're, you're starting to shift. Is that a, a, a conscious decision that you want to be more among us daytime creatures? Yeah. Um, it's kind of started with COVID, uh, or just before COVID my wife retired and um previously it had been very easy to keep any schedule because she wasn't around during the day and so as long as i was up and about by the time she got home from work then i would see her just as often as i would no matter what my schedule was right and it had always suited me to write at night for some uh not just to write at night but to kind of live at night for some reason I don't think I need vitamin D. Um, <laughs> I, I can guarantee you, I went for years without it and uh, saw no ill effects. So um, with her retirement and also we have a house down in Tucson, which it would be pointless to go to if I kept my 
usual hours because um, it gets dark quite early in uh, Arizona, actually. Mm-hmm. So I'm getting up about uh, maybe 10 or 11 in the morning now, um, you know, getting a bite to eat and then starting work about kind of, you know, starting answering emails and things like that around noon and then starting writing about one thirty, two o'clock. Okay, that's starting to sound more like a you know, you're you're into almost like the teenager zone. You're you you've yeah. become a teenager again. You're not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I just I was, have to go, go. You know, I just have to go on a drinking binge like all <laughs> all the Sorry. students I know, and uh, uh, I'll be uh, I'll fit right in. The the insomnia obviously preceded your writing career, but do you think? that your writing would be different like can you if you've ever written during the day if you've ever made yourself beat up during the day can you sense a different your process changes or your approach to words change or your your ability to kind of like disappear within within the writing changes you become too conscious or do you feel a difference um no because what i do is i create a kind of artificial night like right now i'm in my study uh, which is not my place of work. Mm-hmm. I work in what, when we bought this house, was a storage room for every nut and bolt you could possibly imagine needing under any circumstance. This guy was an electrical engineer, and he had this room. And we asked him, you know, uh, he said, hey, you know, this is going to be great for you guys, this storage room. Because he seemed to assume that everyone was like him. And we said, well, we wouldn't know what to do with any of these bolts and screws and everything else. So uh, we said, you know, could you take all that with you? And he said, okay, sure. You know, (laughs) so he did. And I made that my uh, work office. We have we've been in this house 20 years. So I got the advice from someone at the CDC about how to soundproof a room. Okay, uh, so the room is soundproof, you know, with one of those really heavy doors, and there's no light except artificial light because there are no windows. So what I've got is essentially a room that can pass for the nighttime, no matter what time of day it actually is. In Tucson, uh, again, a house we've had for almost twenty years. I work in a walk-in closet, (laughs) which is a little (laughs) weird, I know. Uh, But it has the same advantage of having no windows. And it's actually bigger than my office here. This is an enormous walk-in closet. Sometimes, you know, my schedule used to be radically different than it is now. I mean, I would, um, when I wrote The Colony of Unrequited Dreams, for instance, I was writing from about midnight to seven or eight in the morning. So I never saw the sun or even, you know, an overcast day uh, in years. And it really never bothered me. Uh, I would sometimes go out for a run at night. I did that quite frequently. There was no traffic. It's really easy to run in the middle of the street um, go through lights, do anything you wanted, you know. I've never quite understood when people would 
go on these writing retreats and they would go to like these beautiful cabins that would fulfill me. I wouldn't need to write. I would, I would avoid writing because why would you write when you have so many things to beautiful things to look at? It, it, I would find that very, very distracting. In fact, I know that from experience because I was once for a short time, just for a couple of weeks, a writer in residence in the Azores. Mm. Uh, and each of the writers who were there, there were six of us, I think. This is a while back now. Each of us had a windmill to um, oh, geez, wow. work, to work <laughs> in. Right? Now, the only, you know, so we you had the beautiful Azores, uh, the ocean, the island, the lush, you know, island. Um, and then you had, you know, the exotic uh, place to live and to teach. But my only problem was that, um, first of all, I was distracted. I could hear the ocean, but I could also hear the uh, rotating of the windmill. This was 24 hours a day. The bloody thing wouldn't ever stop. I got used to it after about a day. Um, in fact, by the time I got home, I couldn't sleep without noise. You know, <laughs> as long as it was continuous moving. But yeah, I you know I hadn't really planned to write while I was there, but mm -hmm. I figured if I, you know, really really feel like it, I will. As soon as I got there, I knew that it was going to be, you know, two weeks of teaching and just kind of hanging out. You know, and right. That's what that's what it turned out to be. And are you someone that gets a little a little itchy if you go a couple of days without writing something, even if you know maybe what you're writing may may not turn into anything? Maybe it's just like a scrap or a piece of a draft or something. Do you do you need to have that happen every day? Yeah, I I haven't gone a day without writing. I don't know thirty thirty five years. Um, I don't necessarily sit down at my desk um, every day. The five days of the week, I, mm -hmm. I do. But on the weekend, um, when I'm reading and not at my desk or I'm watching TV or watching a movie, I have a notebook with me. And more often than not, in fact, always, I'll wind up turning the TV off or the music off um, and uh, just start, you know, handwriting, which is what I do all the time anyway, uh, handwriting in a notebook. And I, I find that the writing that I do in that circumstance uh, is often better than the writing I do when I am sort of formally adopting my writer's hat and sitting in my office. There's something about catching your brain off guard, I think, that allows you to tap into things that you wouldn't, uh, you might not otherwise, which has always made me wonder if I'm doing the exact wrong thing by That's... writing, you know, uh, so sheltered from the world. I know all these people, you know, you were mentioning them earlier, all, all these people who write in cafes, you know, mm -hmm. with other people writing in cafes around them. I mean, the last thing I would want to see while writing would be another writer writing. You know, jo Joyce Carol Oates, I, I, when I was in graduate school, I had a professor 
who had gone to uh, Rutgers with Joyce Carol Oates. And, um, you know, it's not a surprise to me that she's so prolific because he, he told this anecdote about how whenever this group of them uh, were gonna go out for a pizza or whatever, uh, she, she convinced them to come to her room to have the pizza there. And she would join them in a pizza, but she would keep writing while she was talking to them, while she was eating pizza, while they were eating pizza. And she was just like, her fingers were never stopping on the keyboard. I mean, first of all, I can't even compose on a keyboard. I have to write longhand first. I think I was born in the wrong century. Yeah, very possible. You probably need a quill. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I should have been like a medieval monk. You know, when you hear things and you start to learn about writers' routines and your your writerly heroes, you kind of start building your own your own writerly ethic. Do you have writers that you kind of built an ethic out of when you were young? Yeah, I started um, actual writing as a newspaper reporter. But my my favorite writers tended to be writers who had very distinctive writing styles. And so I, when I was at university, I, I skipped a lot of classes. Uh, I'd go over to the library and I would, I would read not only their novels, but I would read biographies of them or collections of their letters, especially. And um, F. Scott Fitzgerald is, is one of my favorite writers. Mm. Uh, really just one book, The Great Gatsby. He had a kind of routine that was similar to mine, except that he was often drinking while he was writing. Uh, I, if I'm not in my office, I might have a beer while I'm writing. And that does seem to help. Uh, Fitzgerald drank quite a lot while he was writing. Um, but he would alternate between longhand writing and typing. He would write a sentence, move it around on uh, paper longhand. Then when he was happy with it, type it up and go back and forth like that. I was kind of already doing that, but I felt a kind of, uh, you know, there was an authority to it now, you know, I, hey, mm -hmm. you know, Fitzgerald's doing it. You know, I was about right. 19, I was 19 years old at the time. But Fitzgerald did it that way, you know, that's the way I was doing it. And, and you know, I, I was never that big a fan of Hemingway, or not as big, certainly, as I was with Fitzgerald. And it did not surprise me to hear that Hemingway liked to write while standing up, you know. Uh, he would he would write at a lectern mm -hmm. as if he was addressing an audience, and then he would, you know... Um, uh, write that way. Another one of my fa uh, favorite writers um, uh, who's still taught, uh, but his his sort of lack of structure uh, works against him, but Thomas Wolfe, mm. the American writer from, uh, oh, he died in the, uh, just before the Second World War, I think, um, of a brain aneurysm. He, he was six feet seven or six feet eight inches tall so he wrote on top of a fridge um there used to be back then 
much smaller fridges than there are yeah. now. So I, I was always fascinated by the regiment, you know. Um, um, and I, I always like to answer that question at live events, you know, especially if there are students there. Uh, but one thing I always tell them is, you know, that uh, the secret to writing is not in your routine, you know, uh, mm -hmm. unless you need a particular routine because of something about you. You know, the secret to writing is to, is to as Mordecai Richler once said to me, said he'd never been blocked in his life because when he was feeling blocked, he would simply write. Even if he knew it was gibberish, yeah. he would just write his way out. And I can say, knocking on wood, that I've literally never been blocked at all. Um, I have way more books than I'm ever going to have time to write already in my mind. I think of the books that I haven't yet written as the airplanes that are coming into land at Pearson Airport. There's a place out there you can go to watch the planes come in. And, you know, the one that roars over your head is the one you're working on. But if mm -hmm. you're out there at night and you look in the sky, you'll see this diminishing series of lights stretching away from you. And, you know, the furthest light you can see looks like a star. It's just this tiny speck. And I think of, you know, okay, the nearest, the next nearest light, the next nearest light, the next nearest light. These are all stacked up waiting to land. So that's how I think of my books. And it, it really spurs me on uh, not to spend a, an enormous amount of time uh, between books, you know, waiting for inspiration. Right. Uh, I, I think you can invoke it, you know. Um, I think you can, I think you do need inspiration, but I think you can make it happen. Your This book, Jenny's Boy, it's not your first memoir. You had Baltimore Moore's Mansion before that. Yep. But your, your main, uh, the main thing you work on is fiction. Yeah. When you are working on a book like this, like Jenny's Boy or Balter's Mansion, when you're working on something autobiographical and, and nonfiction, are you engaged in the same way? Or is there ever a sense where your brain is like, this is a project, it's finite, I need to say it right now, I need to tell this story, get it out, and then get back to the thing which is my main stream, which is writing stories, writing fiction or is it does it feel exactly the same while you're while you're working on it? It doesn't it doesn't feel exactly the same, but because there is already a template there, you know, a shape and content when when I'm writing nonfiction. And I don't I mean as you said, I only have, you know, two works of nonfiction, but I I I'm sure I'll write, and you know, I'm fairly certain uh, that I'll write another one. Um, and what I find is that um, because there is so much less invention involved, and I'm really kind of transcribing in a way, I mean, there is invention involved in the way you use language, 
but I'm kind of, I know the events already. Mm -hmm. And I know the structure already because to a large degree, I feel a responsibility to stick to the sort of spatial and temporal um, territory that the memoir or uh, whatever the kind of nonfiction I'm writing, uh, you know, took place in. Um, so my two um, nonfiction books took much less time to write than any of my fiction books, even ones of comparable length. I've written some very big, you know, uh, works of fiction. And, you know, they've taken me, um, I think Colony took me about three years. Um, I think that was the longest. Uh, I did about another one or two years of research for it. But Jenny's Boy, I wrote in about about three months. Wow. Uh, and Baltimore's Mansion in about maybe five. Uh, and both of them came after really big books. And and if if it just to depart from one genre to you know move from one genre to another felt refreshing. Hmm. But also to know that the book was not going to be seven hundred pages long. Right. <laughs> And did not require any research because I yeah. already knew the territory uh, was was quite, you know, um, you know, enlivening. Um, so, yeah, I, I I had quite a lot of fun, especially with Jenny's Boy. Baltimore's Mansion is a kind of combination of memoir and um, history, uh, sort of public history combined with personal history. It's a more complex book than Jenny's Boy, different different kind of book. Uh, it's not as it's not as funny uh, as Jenny's Boy, and I don't you know I never really set out to be funny, but I had a a, a childhood that lent itself to comedy even while I was living, because that's the kind of people we were. Um, but in in retrospect when you know you're not suffering from pleurisy and all the other things i had when i was a kid um you can see the humor in some of the situations i found myself in you know the idea that jenny's boy is a is it's a little more straightforward it's a lighter book it's a funny book although you didn't set out to write humor you know it did win the leacock award there is some sometimes and I've known some writers who've been nominated for that for that prize and have been a bit shocked or a bit puzzled <laughs> because they they thought, well, I didn't think of the book as humor. It was just yeah. essays, personal essays, or it was a serious literary novel. Were you a little taken aback or were you like, OK, that makes some sense? Um, well, when I found out I was nominated, that was my third nomination. Okay. Uh, so I knew I I knew they were aware of you were on their radar. Yeah. I was on their radar. Um and you know there is uh in um uh, uh Jenny's boy some pretty serious writing. Um you know because we we did have a tough time of it as a family and uh I do describe that um not always in comedic terms but often in comedic terms. Um, if you think, 
you know, comparisons are odious, I guess. But if you think of um, uh, Angela's ashes, you're kind mm -hmm. of in the right territory. Yes. You know? um, so at the, uh, you know, when it came down to there being three of us, three, that's the way they do it. They winnow it down from, I think the long list is 10 or 12, and then it goes down to three. And you don't know beforehand. It's one of those, you know, uh, prizes that are given out by Sir Prize. Uh, right. you're in, you're, if, you know, you're in the audience. There's a camera an inch from your face and, you know, you're waiting to hear. And, it, you know, I, like I've, I've been nominated for the Giller five times. I, I know what it's like to wait for that, uh, the winner to be announced. And I, you know, I won the uh, um, Taylor Prize for Baltimore's Mansion. And that mm -hmm. also, you know, you, you didn't know beforehand. Um, so you you know you're going to be surprised whatever the result is because um you know when you when you get there uh the 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 leacock uh, event is actually a three day long thing um they they really put put on quite a quite a show um and what you do while you're there and i, I don't you know i don't know if the Two writers who are nominated with me would admit it but you know you 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 kind of look at the other writers to see if they know because you're told they don't but you always wonder if they right. know. and this year when i won one of the other writers had brought her parents along and i thought oh well that's that's got to be her she's going to win because she's not going to want her parents to be disappointed but um, that, that turned out not to be the case. They they um, they keep it secret. I mean, really secret. They don't say a word to you. I mean, that's its own form of stress and anxiety. But I've also talked to authors who've been nominated for the governor generals where they do tell you in advance who won and they tell you, you whether you did or not. They they describe that as its own, you know, a different form of of hell in that they know they didn't win, <laughs> but they have weeks and weeks of people coming up to them going, oh, we're, we're all oh, you you win. <laughs> yeah, we're all rooting for you. And you just desperately want to say like, no, it's not going to be me. It's hard. I mean, I, my, you know, the first major award I ever won, I won when I was quite young, I was 25. Um, and uh, it was my first book, The Story of Bobby O'Malley. And I won the W.H. Smith Prize for Best mm -hmm first book in Canada and um, my publisher phoned me months ahead of when Books in Canada the magazine was going to announce the winner uh, and told me that I had won and I, I had no idea what the rules were then and I said to him oh wow I'm gonna you know I, I gotta get on the phone I gotta tell everybody and he said no 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 he said you're not allowed to do that and I said well you know when do they give out the prize? And it was like four months down the road. <laughs> so I had to keep this to myself. Oh, you know, um, I had to even keep the nomination to myself. And then that came out. And, I, and, and as you say, you know, everyone is saying, hey, you know, you, you hope you win or whatever, uh, no matter what they really thought. <laughs> uh, and and um, 
but yeah, uh, I knew I had won. And um, one of the things that uh, I, I think the governor general's people do right now that they didn't always do right was that they explicitly tell the non-winners that they didn't win. Mm. Whereas what they used to do was tell the winner that they won, but not tell the non-winners anything. That's right, right. And if you were a non-winner back then and you knew what the rules were, what you said to yourself was, well, I wonder when they tell, when do they tell the winner? Like, am I still in the running? Or is this, is the silence a sign that I haven't won? Because mm -hmm. I've been nominated for the GG three times. Um, and, you know, sometimes um, they'll phone you on one day and tell you you're nominated and phone you two days later and tell you you didn't win. <laughs> so you have a two-day period of, <laughs> you know, um, feeling, you know, pretty good. And then... Um, you, you know, you feel you feel good. I mean, to to the end of it, um, especially because in terms of sales, not so much with the GG anymore, but it, with the Giller, um, you know, you, you don't even know until that night. But the nomination, um, it used to put your book a nomination used to put your book instantly on the bestseller list. I mean, when my first nomination was for colony of unrequited dreams and a week after that was nominated it was up to number two on the bestsellers your your first book won that award i was sort of going through the list and it's kind of remarkable that like almost every one of your books there's some sort of nomination some award it's it's sort of like moths to a flame awards and prizes and juries kind of come looking for you. Are um, you at a point now where, you know, when you get that news from, you know, the Leacock, you're sort of like, oh, that's nice. And you go on with your day. Or are you like, is it still, you know, a rush of good feeling and a little, and again, a sense of like, all right, who else is on the list? What are my chances here? If I was as reclusive as I am rumored to be, <laughs> uh, which I'm not, um, I you know, probably would just carry on and, and you know, I'd, I'd be in a good mood for a couple of days and then, you know, it wouldn't be in my mind so much. But when, you know, when you go out somewhere and you see someone who knows you've been nominated, whether you know you didn't win or not, they're going to talk about it. Mm. So it lingers in your mind and, it, and you sort of start going down that burrow hole of, what are the signs, you know, right. Facebook is like, you know, these days it drive you crazy because people will, you know, can sometimes inadvertently give away something about a prize. You know, I, I won't name instances, but I've a couple of times just by fluke, uh, you know, read Facebook posts that again, inadvertently uh, narrowed the field down to one. You know, mm -hmm. uh, and it turned out that, yes, that book uh, was, you know, was the winner. It would be great if every prize could be a surprise. Have you done that thing where you're sitting in the audience and you've either talked yourself into it and you've you've spent the prize money? You're like, that's a new, <laughs> no. that's a new, that's a new roof on the Tucson <laughs> house. No, no. <laughs> 
My or do you go couple, the other way and you're like, I'm not even going to write a speech. I'm not going to think about it. My first two times uh, being nominated for the Giller, I was nominated like Alice Monroe and I got into perfect synchronicity with publishing. So <laughs> that's the first bad two luck. years. That's bad luck. <laughs> was nominated. So I was totally relaxed, you know. Um, yeah. I wasn't told I wasn't going to win, but I knew I wasn't going to win. Um, so, but then after that, and 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 with other prizes, there, you know, I I've thought I got a shot, you know, I could win. Uh, with the very first book, I I had no idea what to think. I, I would have been quite happy just to have been nominated. Uh, when I found out I won, um, I didn't really know how much it would, uh, how many books it would sell. You know uh, that uh, I don't know how many books that prize sells now, and it might 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 have been the book because it is a very funny book, and those do sell. Um, it kind of became a kind of. Uh, you know, um, word of mouth book as as a books could be back then when there were more independent bookstores. Um, the um, the bookstore on um, Church that's no longer open. Uh, this ain't the Rosedale Library. Mm -hmm. They sold like a ton of my books. Um, for some reason, the guy who ran the store um really liked it and he recommended it to everyone so that was you know that was the kind of thing that could happen back then it doesn't you know it doesn't happen uh like that anymore uh it, it doesn't need to to some extent um if you're the winner but you know even if you're the you know back in the day even if you weren't nominated there was only one prize and that was the governor general's award even if you weren't nominated your book could make its way by word of mouth mm -hmm. And hand selling, uh, touring, uh, those kinds of things actually made much more of a difference in the, in the past. Do you think this sounds like a slightly odd question, but given that track record of your first book right out of the gate, winning an award, all of these award nominations and bestsellerdom and awards, can you do this sort of counterfactual, how you would have evolved as a, as a writer without if if juries had just snubbed you all along and bestsellers had not happened and you had just been doing it um, as as many of us do i will say you know down yeah. in the, down in the trenches kind of thing yeah i don't know um a lot of it would have had to do with um you know the amount of time that money buys you mm -hmm. um when i was very young uh and god knows i was naive i said to myself um you know, I don't care. Uh, I I had to get published. I, I I really wouldn't have kept writing if I wasn't published. I remember Sylvia Plath saying, "You know, nothing stinks more than an unpublished manuscript." You know, <laughs> uh, and and she had one. You know, <laughs> for the Belgian. Um. So I had to get published. Um. After that, I told myself, you know, uh, I, I would just I just reminded myself of all the great writers who never won any accolades and, in fact, died without, you know, sometimes without being published or were, you know, published in very small numbers and were liked by a kind of literary elite like mm -hmm. James Joyce, but were not known throughout even, you know, Ireland, you know. So I I just 
I had this notion as a young person that that would sustain me. Whether or not it would have, I don't know. Um, there's a uh, an American writer, and I, I know you know him or know of him, Richard Ford. Oh yeah, he he was asked, um, and he he told me this. He he was asked if he thought that early fame would have ruined him as a writer, and he said, "This is the best sort of take on." how writers you know feel about that question uh he said i don't know he said but i would have loved to had have had the chance to find out there's actually a line uh i can't remember if i found this on your website or maybe it's on your wikipedia page it's it's this line that i it really struck me it's he worked and it's talking about you obviously he worked as a reporter for the saint john's daily news before deciding to devote himself full time to writing, and it struck me because there's 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 almost a an innocence to that phrase of just deciding to devote yourself to full time <laughs> writing. Like that's just a yep. decision you can make. I could either go work in a coal pit or I'll become a full time writer. Well, uh, it's like I'll saying, take I'll take that. <laughs> it's like saying I'll accept that income now. Thank you. Just you know, just drop it <laughs> off on the drop it off of the step. I can't promise anything, but thanks for the money. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know that, that, you know, that is the kind of phrase that gets in your bio and they, it sticks there, you know. What Happened Next is produced and edited by me. The music playing under my voice is by the great Alex Lukashevsky, who is letting me use it for free. You can find more of Alex's music at alukashevsky.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. There will be a new episode every Monday. Please buy more books, and not just new ones.